Welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show podcast. Think of it like a magazine or a box of chocolates. You never know what you'll get. From politics to pop culture, healthcare to legal issues, it's all here. And my behind-the-wheel chats are personal observations created especially for you on podcast only. Enjoy. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And welcome back to the Lisa Wexler Show. You know that I am preoccupied with too much light at night ever since I learned that we have converted our natural night into a light-filled, hazardous place for so many living creatures, but particularly birds who will fly around the lit building until they die of a heart attack, who are estimated to be dying on the millions on the way to and from migration patterns that have been grossly distorted and upset by our insistence on lighting the night skies when we really don't have to. And I saw Viveka Morris, who is the executive director of Law, Ethics, and Animals at a program at Yale Law School and a research scholar. I saw that she was quoted in a recent piece about an effort that she is part of that is going to try and create awareness and hopefully change when it comes to having so much damage caused to our birds. And I was really excited to chat with her and meet her. Viveka Morris, welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show today. Hi, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, it's such a pleasure. I mean, look at you. You founded the Law, Ethics, and Animals program, which is described as an initiative dedicated to addressing large-scale industrial abuses of animals and their impacts on the planet. I mean, how marvelous are you? What made you decide to make this your life's work, Viveka? Oh, um, well, like many people, I've um, I've always cared very much about animals and um, am disturbed about the the way in which uh, we treat them often. And most of our program's work focuses on animal agriculture and the the impacts of that industry on both animal welfare and the climate. But um, a few years ago, we started focusing much more so on, uh, as well on this issue of bird window collisions, um, which is one that is uh, more directly relevant here in, in Connecticut. And it's been a, a, a pleasure and exciting to work on. And there's a lot of exciting progress being made on, on this issue both um, nationally and increasingly in our state as well. So, Viveka, let's talk about this notorious building at Yale. Because there's a notorious building at Yale, which I understand is a particularly obnoxious bird magnet causing a lot of bird deaths. Have you been able to fix that yet? Sure. So, um, I I think often people... um, 
I mean, to take a step back, birds collide with buildings for a number of different reasons. You mentioned light at the beginning, which is part of it, but a big part of it is, is glass as well. So in the you know late 20th century and mid 20th century, as glass became much more affordable, and we started to see buildings built in New Haven and at Yale and you know, all over the country, really, and all over our state. Um, we, you know, buildings with big glass facades proliferated, and this has created a really lethal danger for birds because birds, you know, like humans, can't perceive the glass, and so they think it's a clear flyway. Um, so if there's no pattern or, um, you know, other visual marker on the glass to alert the birds to its presence, you know, they don't know it's there, and it, and it creates a deadly optical illusion for them. Um, so there are a number of buildings. We've been studying uh, buildings at Yale for about the past five years informally. In the past two years, thanks to an initiative funded by the university more formally, um, which includes a, a number of problematic buildings. Um, I think the one that you're referring to is the Yale School of Management, which is a, a big glass building on Whitney Avenue in New yes. Haven, which yes. ha has indeed um, ha has a major bird collision problem. Um, and the facilities managers there have been terrific partners for us on this initiative, and they have installed a pilot um, solution to a part of the back of the building. It's, it's not for the full building, which... Um, you know, needs more work to prevent these collisions from continuing to occur. But um, basically, they use feather-friendly film, which is a well-tested brand of um, window film on part of the back of the building. And my understanding is that they're uh, planning an expansion of that um, to larger parts of the building in the spring, is which would be working? great. Um, Have they reduced the amount of it birds is working. dying? It is working. It is. Okay. They've reduced it at, at that section of the building, and so it's a big, it's a big, big glass building with you know many facades of glass that need to be addressed. And, and the facade that was treated um, ha has absolutely seen a reduction, um, which we've seen in our data, and we expect that when the other facades are treated, that will happen there as well. Um, so, so you're focusing you know, on, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say you're focusing, oh, say. Rebecca Morris, on collecting data. Because the data is what you need to persuade other people to make change. Is that why there's an emphasis on that? Yeah, exactly. Um, we're collecting the data for several reasons. Um, a big one is, so, so we've been monitoring about 50 buildings across Yale's campus for bird collisions. But the, the science of bird window collisions is um, increasingly robust. People have been studying this for decades um, and, and accelerating um, an accelerating number of papers and so forth have been published in, in more recent years. But there have been few papers published on bird collisions in Connecticut. Um, and, you know, to fix this issue, it, the issue is entirely fixable, but it takes some resources and it takes a willingness to see an aesthetic change to the building to, to get that done. And so having data to show, you know, here is the number and the types of birds that are being impacted by the building. And here specifically where on these, some, in some cases, very large buildings, these strikes are occurring. Um, so the goal of really having this data is to be able to target resources to fix the portions of buildings that are most problematic to make, to make the use of those resources as impactful um, and to save as many birds as possible. Viveka Morris, I have a question for you. One of the things we sure. know that has been, we know this, is that lighting the night skies is, is a big no-no. Um, we are taking mm -hmm. birds off of their migratory patterns. We are confusing them. We're not just confusing birds. I mean, think about all the creatures that have to go out at night, and they are unfamiliar with a lit environment, and therefore they change their own patterns, which throws them off in the way they're supposed to live. Um, mm -hmm. when, what, do you, what are you suggesting or proposing? How can we get the word out to do less lighting of our night skies, which, by the way, light pollution is bad for people, too. 
Yeah, absolutely. No, it's bad for it's bad for everyone, and it's an enormous and I think still largely overlooked problem. Um, well, there's sort of a number of ways in which light pollution can impact birds. You mentioned at the beginning the circling behavior, mm-hmm. and that you know that was a phenomenon that, from my understanding, was originally witnessed you know years and years ago at lighthouses that would project light upwards, and the birds get caught in almost like a vortex going around the light. Um, but I think that that increasingly, in part because light pollution is so diffuse and so common now, it's still witnessed at places like the 9-11 Memorial in New York City. But um, it's not a phenomenon that we've seen often in New Haven or in um, Connecticut, to my knowledge. But instead, what you have is sort of light pollution broadly from cities attracting birds into the urban environment, where they are then at much greater risk for collisions. Um, the collisions occur primarily during the daytime hours then when the birds have you know, landed to rest or to forage on their migration route. So, um, you know, addressing the the mortality from from light and uh, and collisions really needs to go go hand in hand. So we both need to reduce the light pollution and address the um, dangerous conditions for birds in terms of building design. Um, so there's been yeah, um, I, yeah. Go ahead. I mean, so are we? In other words, does your does your research is it picked up by your local architectural school at Yale and at other places? Are we having a sharing? of this important knowledge so we can make concrete, pragmatic change? Um, I, I, yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Um, we are, yes, so we're, we've published some of the data online and we'll publish in the coming year as we finish wrapping up the study, um, all of our data and methods and results with the hope that, you know, it will be um, acted upon, certainly, certainly at our university, but hopefully it will be useful to folks at other major institutions, their campuses. I think Yale has over 500 buildings. And it's certainly not the only you know, university or big institution in the country like that. So I think universities and um, other such institutions can, by changing their policies and changing their buildings, really have quite a significant impact. But we also need this impact to be occurring, just given the scale and nature of the problem, at the level of policy. So we produced um, this past summer and published online in a way that's available for everybody for free, um, and uh, is hopefully being uh, used by localities, a review of effectively all of the state and local laws in the U.S. related to bird-friendly buildings to date wow. and assess their, assess their effectiveness and sort of made recommendations for how um, what can be learned from sort of these examples that, that really started around 2008 um, and, um, and going for, and most, most uh, perhaps notably New York City adopted rules related to bird-friendly buildings. They are very rigorous and stringent in, in 2019, 2020. Well- well, what makes so a bird-friendly what makes a bird-friendly building, Professor Morris? What makes a building more bird-friendly than not? Um, well, there are a bunch of there are many many ways that bird buildings can be designed to be bird-friendly. So, you know, historically, basically, I, I would say at the simplest level, having large pieces of glass that have no pattern or no way for a bird to perceive them visually is what makes it unfriendly. And there are a lot of ways to fix that. Um, so, you know, you see even, for instance, on Yale's campus here, many of the older buildings that incorporate stained glass or um, windows with uh, mullion patterns on the windows are, are very bird-friendly uh, without intending to be so. Um, and in many modern structures can also be that way. There are all sorts of ways. If you put insect screens, for example, on the outside of windows, that creates enough of a barrier that birds can see it and perceive it and won't, it will not strike the windows. If you put um, patterns or fritz, and which is a, you know, you can have ceramic fritz and glass, for example, 
that can make it very friendly. So they're both sort of design solutions in terms of how much glass and where glass is used that can make it make it um, more accommodating to birds. And then there are also ways in which you can keep large pieces of glass and you know use specific types of glass or patterns on that glass to make it so that birds can see it and avoid it. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You know, I'm reading your research. We're chatting with Professor Vivek Amaris, 203-333-9422. And it says that your initiative documented over 2,000 bird-to-building collisions on or, near, on or near Yale's New Haven campus since 2018, an estimated mm-hmm. 1 billion birds a year, I can't even comprehend that, die a year across North America when they crash into buildings and other objects. And you're quoted as or saying or having written that the birds killed were predominantly migratory songbirds, They represent over 70 species, chickadees, sparrows, mourning doves, yellow throats. On a single day in October of 2022, 82 birds were killed at just three locations. I mean, this is a heartbreak, Viveka. This is a heartbreak. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I think I'd emphasize that there's nothing particularly there's certainly some buildings at Yale, at Yale's campus and in New Haven that are particularly problematic, but um, there's nothing unique about our campus or our city um, for this problem. So I think that it's surely a problem that's occurring across our state and in cities across the state, but just hasn't been studied or documented quite to the same degree. So while 2,000 birds um, you know, over the past five years is a, is a shocking number, it's also surely a really dramatic undercount because we're only monitoring rigorously for during the migration season. You know, there are many carcasses that we miss. There are many birds that hit buildings and then, um, you know, have brain injuries or other injuries are stunned and then go off and fly and, um, you know, die elsewhere soon thereafter in part due to the injury sustained. So, um, so while 2000 is is certainly a shocking number, um, I think that it, it, it can easily be seen as, as a significant undercount. And one of the solutions you say, and this is an equitable solution in terms of social justice as well, is that we in Connecticut need to do a better job of having more trees and having more forest cover, right? Um, I, I haven't been involved in anything related to forest cover. I know I, I recently wrote an article um, about this initiative for the Connecticut State of the Birds um, report produced by Connecticut Audubon and some of my um, fellow authors there have written about urban forest cover and other forest cover, but that's not something that I've studied or am an expert in. 
Okay, because it was in the same article where you were quoted that it quoted another professor talking about how Connecticut lags behind the rest of New England when it comes to preserving forests and that urban tree covers can at least be somewhat of a mitigation of the problem of all of these bird deaths if we have more trees. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So I'm really interested, Viveka Morris, again, in talking about bird-friendly buildings versus not bird-friendly buildings because we are in the throes right now of major development in Connecticut. We are, we've rewritten our laws to provide for developers to have a lot more power when it comes to conversations about character and zoning and density and height. Our local zoning commissions largely are being stripped of a lot of independence when it comes to these decisions And it seems to me, since you're a public policy person, that it would be really wonderful if you could go to Hartford and talk to our legislators about creating some standards, some strict, stringent standards for the next generation of buildings that goes up in Connecticut. Well, I'm all for it. I think that, uh, you know, that would be... um... That would be advisable and, and uh, beneficial to you know people and birds alike. And we are in a moment now, nationally even, where in part because of the just focus on ensuring that cityscapes become more net zero and you know sort of green building legislation is on the rise. I think there is a real opportunity to integrate bird friendly building practices into that sort of once in a generation or once in a century transformation of um, city buildings that we're we're starting to see occur now. Um, and certainly, I think that this this is an issue, given its scale, that that needs to be taken on by policymakers um, at the state level. There's some and some sort of early efforts to do this at the federal level that that haven't succeeded, but have received some traction. Um, and and it's absolutely, you know, as as you implied, easiest to incorporate bird friendly building design from the start of a building as opposed to needing to go back and retrofit buildings after the fact. Um, so I think that absolutely that having policies focused on ensuring that our buildings are, are are sustainable, not just for people, but for Connecticut's wildlife as well, would be uh, terrific and is much needed. Have you spoken with Leo Smith, who is the Connecticut leader of the Dark Skies Coalition? Have you spoken with him? Um, I've met him. I, I talked on a panel with him um, some months ago. I mean, it just seems to me that with your credentials and knowledge – and research and what he comes to that maybe you guys could combine forces and sort of make the rounds of local architectural review boards. I'm a very big pragmatist, Ms. Morris, professor. I really believe in implementing solutions once we know that they are in front of the people that are decision makers. And if you guys could create, I know Leo Smith has some kind of like a, like a, um, like a building code, you know what I mean? Like suggested building code mm-hmm. for for night skies. If you could create some kind of bullet points for bird-friendly buildings, we could get it disseminated among the influential people in Connecticut pretty quickly. Well, we hope that um, the report that we produced, which is on you know bird-friendly building policies, I think is a great resource for that to start um, and that it goes through in-depth what bird-friendly building policies need to include to be effective, sort of shortcomings of some of the policies to date that have led them to be less effective than they could be, et cetera. So 
we hope that that will be that will be useful. And and, um, and uh, Leo Smith's a great advocate for dark skies in Connecticut um, from everything that I know. And he, I, I believe, is part of the Lights Out Connecticut organization, yeah, which I is led so. by right led by Meredith Barges, who co-authored the report that I just described with me, and is a terrific advocate for Connecticut's birds. Um, and they worked hard in this past this past year to um, pass a bill um, in the Connecticut State House that was focused on ensuring that lights are turned off at state-owned buildings right. during the we, migration we season. We advocated for that on the show every day. Oh, we great. carried on. Great. Oh, oh yeah. good for you. Oh, yeah. Good for you. Of course. Um, so um, I, absolutely, I, I would be delighted to work with Leo uh, further in the future. And I think that he and Meredith and, and Craig uh, Respaz, who also leads that group, have done um, terrific work. Yeah. And Professor Morris at Yale Law School, do you teach a course relevant to this? Are you teaching people about the ethics of what they do and how it's put into practice for animal welfare? Um, no, we don't teach a course on, on bird family buildings. I should say, too, I'm not a professor. I am a research scholar at, at Yale, but uh, okay. well, I'm not a professor. But, okay. um, but uh, no, we teach courses on other subject matters, but, but not on this. But we have had um, – I, I lead this initiative with Christoph Zygowski, who is a wonderful ornithologist and the, direct, and the collections manager for ornithology at Yale's Peabody Museum. Um, and he and I hire about a dozen of research assistants who are primarily Yale undergraduates and graduate students um, each migration season to help us with the building monitoring um, and the preparation of the birds who are then collected and, um, and brought to the PVD mu- uh, Museum for um, further education and research. Um, so we have a robust group of students and folks who are involved in it, but there's no official course related to this initiative. I just think it's so sad to pick up these little bird bodies and see how tragic it is that these accidental deaths are occurring and we can prevent them. So uh, before I let you go, Ms. Morris, for us who just have single-family homes, are there any specific mm-hmm. things that you want to tell us to do? I know you've said mullions on windows are good. I have a colonial house, so I have all of mm-hmm. those. Um, but I've still had the occasional bird collision, very rare, very sad when it happens. Um, is this something yeah. that you want us to do and want us to be thinking about? As homeowners, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, it's often I think misunderstood or assumed that the vast majority of these collisions are occurring at sky rises or at you know really tall skyscrapers, and, and certainly the you know especially the mass collision events that occur there are dramatic and deserve attention and mitigation. But um, the studies indicate that the vast majority of the one billion collisions that are occurring are occurring at, at residences and at medium-sized buildings. Um, of which we have many in Connecticut here. And so any efforts that homeowners can take to address their um, windows to make them safer for birds would, are, are absolutely encouraged. And, you know, what solution makes the most sense probably depends on the design of the house. But I would recommend um, American Bird Conservancy, which is a terrific and small nonprofit that's been focused on bird window collisions for years, has a database of products and solutions and strategies on their website. That's easily accessible where homeowners can search for um, both specific products such as decals that are applied to the outside of the window or films um, and um, can also see sort of more um, in-depth design solutions that homeowners have applied. So I would encourage you or others who might be interested to to check out American Bird Conservancy's website for specific ideas on, on what they can do to make their homes safer for birds. Thank you, Ms. Morris. America Bird Conservancy. All right, we'll look it up. Perfect. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you so much right, for joining us Thank you so much for today. having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. We'll be right back with more of the Lisa Wexler Show. Stay tuned. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends. And as always, feel free to contact me at lisa at lisawexler.com. 